Welcome to Open Ears and Creative Minds, the show where we bring you stories and conversations with members of the artistic community. Now, here's your host, Will Mitchell. Hey, hello, listeners. I'm Will. Welcome to the world premiere, episode one of Open Ears and Creative Minds. In the course of my travels and my work, uh, I'm lucky enough to meet what I think are some very interesting characters. Uh, Everyone has a story. Some people have lots of stories. And if you're listening to this podcast, hopefully you enjoy a good story yourself. Uh, I've got some great guests lined up in the coming episodes, and I've got a super one to start off with here. So sit back, enjoy. This is episode one, Joel Bernstein. Today we're at the San Francisco Bay Area home of the legendary Joel Bernstein. Joel is best known as a photographer, musician, and record producer, but also his background as an archivist and avid music historian makes Joel the go-to person for accurate and detailed information on modern music and recording artists. Some of the album covers that his photos have appeared on include After the Gold Rush, Four-Way Street, Rita Coolidge, Wind on the Water, Running on Empty, CSN, Bob Dylan at Budokan, Russ Never Sleeps, Shadow and Light, and Hard Promises. An entire podcast series could be devoted to Joel's vast and varied body of work, but today we sit down to discuss photography. Hi, Joel. Hey. Wow. Thanks. The story goes that some photos you shot when you were a teenager in Philadelphia of a young, unsigned singer-songwriter is what launched your career. Can you walk us through that a bit? Yes. And that person was Joni Mitchell. Joni was my uh, first important subject. And it was through her that my photography uh, eventually became known. She was the first person to uh, think that I had some talent. And um, shortly after this, asked me to be her photographer, which I said, sure, not really knowing. What does that mean to be a photographer? I mean, if you're 18, like, I'm still in school. You Mm -hmm. live in California. But sure, I'll do that. And so here you were, you were just getting ready to be into 10th grade, and you already knew Joni Mitchell. Yes, we we met um, when I was, uh, I first heard of Joni when I was 14 uh, on uh, late night radio. It was, turns out to be a tape that Tom Rush, the folk singer, uh, recorded at WBZ, the radio station in Boston, Boston yeah. right? And I, probably like you, um, was one of those kids who listened to the radio a lot and one day found that at night um, I had a, a large GE transistor radio with a big whip antenna. And one day I realized that at sunset, stations that I couldn't hear during the daytime right. were coming in. And my favorite station was WBZ because apparently uh, maybe it had to do with Boston and the general liberal atmosphere and the fact that you have a lot of college kids, mm-hmm. lots of colleges in the audience. They were like a little sharper and they had this, you got the sense that the general manager left at five and never listened, like, like the last thing he was going to do was like listen to the radio so that the late shift was always like a little wild. Right. Uh, and anyway, so on there, I heard uh, Tom Rush go, uh, yeah, and this is a song a friend of mine talked to me last week. Uh, her name's Joni Mitchell. 
and and he sings the song "The Urge for Going," mm. right? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wow, that is a great song. And so this was a recording right? he had made, like a he made club a demo. He made a demo, and uh, he had just learned it from her. He had stayed at Chuck and Joni's house mm -hmm. in Detroit at their apartment on while he was playing the chess mate in New York. And there was like, you know, at that point, it's like you're not paying for a hotel room if you're on the you can't afford a hotel room. You got to stay like you stay with a club owner, you stay with your friend who's there, right? Chuck and Joni are like Chuck's a really minor figure on the folk music circuit, but they know it's so, so she gets introduced to Eric Anderson, Dave Van Ronk, right? And Tom Rush, among others who are like, have real, have record deals. They're doing, they're real guys on a tour, have a real following, yeah. et cetera. So he comes back and at radio station does a demo of this thing and they put it on the air. Um, and I hear it, I think it's live. Like I think it's Tom Rush in the studio, like going, oh yeah, and here's a, like that I happen to tune in. There's no intro like saying, and here's a demo for him. And um, I just thought, God, that is a great, like really, what a cool song. I was like, I, um, I started playing guitar when I was six. So probably with uh, ukulele and then bass ukulele. So by the time I was 15, this is the time we're talking about here uh, that I'm hearing this, it's 14. I'm a really pretty good folk guitarist. I finger pick well, I'm like one of the better guitarists going. and. So, I mean, in my high school anyway, or junior high school. And um, what wound up happening is that I went to another concert with Dave Van Ronk playing, and he did one of her songs, which was Both Sides Now. And I just thought, like, is that the same? Didn't he say it was Joni Mitchell? Was like, is that the same person? Then Chuck and Joni Mitchell are going to appear in town at you know at this tiny coffee house, the second fret in downtown Philadelphia. I'm too young to go, or I have homework, or they don't let you in because they serve beer. I don't even think they were serving beer and wine even, but I was not allowed to go or for whatever reason was stuck at home. But there was a folk music radio show by a, a guy in advertising named Ivan Shaner, who's, who's, what is it? What would you say the DJ's name is? In other words, it's not, it's his pen name, his, his right. nickname. It's not his nickname, his stage it's name. It's his on-air name, yeah. His on-air name, thank yeah. you. His on-air name is Gene Shea. He would, be, he would play stuff from a Phil Oaks album, a Tim Harden album, all of those kinds of people that would not ever be on FM radio at that point, right, or AM radio or any, anything. So it was a, um, a real touchstone for me. Anyway... He announced that she was going, she and he uh, and her husband were going to come to the station after their show. I thought, oh, this is fantastic. Yeah, and because I knew that he had a call-in section. So they're there. Now, my dad has just purchased a, to replace his dictaphone, he has purchased a new micro cassette recorder that's this big. Uh-huh with the little tiny cassettes. So I just put that, like I turn it on, I figure out how to how to work it, and I just put it next to the speaker of my you know, radio in my room, and I record their set, right? Just, you know, like maybe she'll play that song. Right, they, they did a right? set at the radio station. Right, they did a set, and okay. they inter it's an interview, and mm -hmm. then they're gonna play music also. And then there's a, you know, a call in and I call in and, and Joni's answering the calls. 
and I ask her for like, how can I get some sheet music for this song, Urge for Going? Like I heard Tom Rush, your friend Tom Rush. I was like, oh yeah, Tom, that's right. He really liked that song. Yeah, well, here's where you send off to. And it's like a name for their, it's like the address of their production company. She plays this, this song she's worked on, which is The Circle Game, which is a song I've never heard before. And again, I'm like, wow, this might even be better than that Urge for Going song. Right, like this is amazing. She's playing, and I'm like, okay, I, I now I've got to learn. I'm going to get the sheet music for that other thing, but this one I've got to learn like now, right? I've and got it on tape. Recording, yeah, yeah, I've got it on tape. So I'm thrilled that I have this tape recording. So they they finish, and then like, I am staying up until I can fucking figure this out. So by dawn, I have figured out like how to play the song. Wow. Right. And that became my hobby, was to figure that stuff out. Do you remember first meeting her? When I first met her was when I took the first picture that I developed and printed by myself in the darkroom, which I took of her in this same coffee house. So literally, your first photo that you took of Joni Mitchell was the first photo that you actually ever developed and mm. printed out of any photos you ever took. Ever. And that photo was what launched your career. Correct. That's amazing. So I brought it, I brought a copy of that. I mounted it on a mount board with, with an iron, mm -hmm. using an iron and a um, mount tissue. Yeah. Like that. And signed it and brought two of them. Uh, it was like an 11 by 14 mounted on a 16 yeah. by 20. And I took the train down to downtown and, you know, got into the... And, um, and that's when I went up the circular staircase to where the dressing room was and uh, asked her to sign, introduce myself and said, hi, I did this picture of you and would you mind signing one? I want to give you one of them. And, oh, that's so nice of you. That's really great. Thank you. It was like a terrible picture. And she signs, you know, one to me, right? So that was the first um, time that uh, I met her. And then I think I, so I came back. So she would, it turned out that Philadelphia was her most, um, was her largest fan base hmm. of all the places on her circuit. Like it wasn't New York. She had a hard time getting booked in New York, but she could go to these different clubs like she did well in Cambridge. Right, you could just imagine she did well in Ann Arbor, right, college right, towns, etc. College towns, exactly. But Philadelphia, for some reason, had enough people that she could do three sets a night, right? So she's like, and she's staying at the club owner's mm -hmm. place. And 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 by the way, uh, she's been taught two open tunings, open E and open G, which have the same chords moved a string down, right? So I think Van Bronck has showed her one and Eric Anderson has showed her the other. And so she's trying to get, so she got standard tuning and then she has these two other tunings. Mm -hmm. And so she's trying to get from one of those tunings to another and she gets lost. And she was like, I, I don't know, I think it's this way. And she just starts retuning and it's like, I don't know, what about, that sounds kind of cool, what is that? So she gradually like builds a chord that's an open chord 
And she like she she like comes it's like it's dissonant. You know, like how it's like imagine if you randomly you're yeah. an open G and you're trying to like move something, so you move it down a whole step and you're like, yeah, mm, right. And then you wind up randomly getting this thing that's almost like this great chord. And if all you have to do is to like move this one string, it's gonna it's like, ooh, delicious would be yeah. what she would say. Right? It's like, yeah. So she finds this tuning that no one's ever found before. And she decides, I'm gonna like gonna make some chords up. I wanna play in this. This is fun. Like what a warm chord this is. But now she's in a uh, she's in, in a, a totally tuning. uncharted territory. She doesn't know what it doesn't is. Doesn't know the anything. And can't change the math. that ever again. And then she realizes and she loses them, right? In other words, like she'll write something and then it's like gone because how do I get back to it? So anyway, the point is she gets lost and winds up in this world of alternate tunings that she has dropped in without, like in other words, she doesn't realize how out of her depth she is. And she doesn't, she's not like, oh fuck, I really fucked up. Well, let me get me, let me get back to that G tuning. It's more like that's kind of wild, this world. And so she starts writing. That's how she begins to write. Right. And of course, in alternate tunings. Of course, Joni was known for her entire career of Having of all these make, cr crazy alternate tunings right, that which, nobody and, would and, ever and, know. Exactly. And so when I was, so as a kid, in other words, so her set, when she's doing those three shows a, a night, three sets a night of a half hour each, which you can hear in the second fret tapes because Ed Shockey, who was a protege of, of Gene Shea and worked at the radio stations, sat with a wall and sock and a microphone sitting next to me at the thing pointing up at her. And he has reels and reels and reels of her, right? Wow. And those were made into bootlegs. Those were copied yeah, to digital, yeah. that I made into bootlegs, etc. Tell us, Back, tell us about Joni's. That's uh, the, D28, the guitar. That's right. Exactly. She only has the one guitar, and she has the it's a Martin D twenty eight. And how does how does she get this guitar? Well, when she's with her husband, they're playing not only uh, you're doing a combination of folk clubs and army bases at that point. Okay, it's Vietnam War. You have you have clubs around, and like you know, the guys get their paycheck. They just want to get out. They want to hear like some stuff. The folk music is still going on, although they're catching the tail, they're at the tail end like we talked about with Neil, right? Yeah. It's more like about bands at that point. Yeah. Um, but uh, but at this point, she's she's at the tail end. You know, Arlo Guthrie is the next week, for example, let's say, right? Uh, so there was a, so it's right in the, in the time when people are being shipped off or doing tours of duty in, in Vietnam from the base. And a, he's a lieutenant, uh, would come in to see their set. And at one point, he brought this Martin guitar in and he said, here, I want to give this to you. And told her the story was he had had it on his last tour of duty in Vietnam. He had two guitars with him. He had a Stella in a cardboard case and he had the Martin guitar in its hard shell case. He was in a mortar attack the mortar attack blew the Stella to smithereens. 
The Martin, which was closed in its case, never sounded the same again. The shockwave of whatever happened in the mortar, like, so it didn't sound like a D-28 anymore. Wow. It really didn't. It. Uh, who knows why? If you took it to the Martin factory, they'd probably repair it and it would sound like a D-28 again. And maybe like some struts came loose, right? Right. Who knows what it was? But it really didn't sound like a D-28 anymore. It didn't have the super low. thing. was more folky and like easier to finger pick, right? Like the thing we were talking about where like D-sized guitars are really not meant for finger picking. Yeah, they're, they're just not. They're well, yeah, they're yeah. meant for a strong right hand with a flat pick, right? So her, nonetheless, she's able to, with light gauge set, take this guitar and it becomes this beautiful thing. And so her, so she's using the one guitar, right, to create her set. Once she, once she is figuring, by the time I've seen her, she's written, been writing in these alternate tunings, right? And so she would develop these charms to, because she had to retune the one guitar so she do, let's say, she knew two, she wrote two songs in standard tuning. She does both of those. Then she like does one in drop D, right? Then she does one in D modal. Yeah. Right? Then she does, now she always has to do is detune the A string down to G, and she's an open G. So progressively and as the progressively show. Progressively as the show. This whole yeah. set list has to do with how can you easily get to these things. So the, the set see what I mean? is informed by what tuning it by is. By what tuning it is. And what the songs are. Totally. That's exactly. So it's hilarious. Part of it was like, like she's into the next tuning. No guitarist out there is like going to be following. What You know what I mean? Nobody, there's like the amount of, the number of people out there who could have any idea what the fuck you're doing. And I would certainly would not have been able to do that, right? But because I have the tapes, so again, like there's the first tape. But then I have a friend who has, she comes back to the same folk music program on her own, right? She does like a couple things with Chuck. A friend of mine has a tape recorder. You know, he's a folky. He, like, we tune in the folk. It's like, wow, could we, like, could I come over to your house and we could, like, record this instead of my dick, like, because then we have a thing and I could come over to your house and listen to the tapes, right? So that's what I start doing. And the whole wow. thing becomes my hobby is like figuring out Joni Mitchell songs. Amazing. Okay. And you're in 10th grade. And I'm in like 10th grade, right. And that is like my hobby, right. And so by the time, well, actually I start, I'm starting in ninth grade. And so, uh, yeah, ninth grade. And so in the fall of 10th grade in 1968, so I'm, I'm like figuring out like, so it's like tape. Okay, we're gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna woodshed. What is she doing? Then I get really into the world and I get into the alternate tunings and I start writing stuff down and I figure out the tunings and I write them down and I figure out the chords and I'm like, this is my hobby. I'm just digging this stuff. So anyway, what then happens is she her record first record comes out in like spring of 68, right? So I've already seen her in in this coffee house, right? Through through this. And then I go to this folk festival where she's playing, mm -hmm. right, and photograph her there, like, you know, and uh, a month or two later, uh, I shoot her at the Next Level Up Folk Club, the main point, where you have to have a record deal to play. There's no obscure people. Everybody who's going to play there has a record deal. It's next to Bryn Mawr is what, Swarthmore College? Is, is that what I'm thinking? 
So she's she's playing there, uh, and I go. My mom drops me off. Do my first. I take. I, I you know see her show, and I photograph her during the set. Then I go backstage afterwards, and um, take a picture. I'll show you um, that was that she later, when she saw a print of it, said, "That's the best picture of me anyone's ever taken. Would you be my photographer?" So that was a big turning point in the list. So, so shortly after I took that picture, I brought out this list that I'd written down of song of her songs, and she was very gracious. And I showed her this list, and she said, "Oh, are, are those the songs of mine you've heard?" It was like thirty songs or something like that. So it was like I could have easily, you know. I said, "Well, no, those are the ones I can play." And her eyes blazed for a second. She took the guitar and thrust it at me like this, by the neck, holding it by the neck vertically. Said, "Show me." Wow. Wow. You're 16 years old. I'm 16. Uh-huh. So I retune it. It's in some tuning. I tune it to something, and I pl- I don't know what song it was. I play her one of the songs, and she's staring at like my hands, and she's like, "Fuck this kid, this fucking teenager." Fucking figured my shit out. I can't fucking believe this. And she's like staring at it, like, uh-huh. wow, yeah. It's like, you know, I'm sure I'm getting some chords wrong, but they sound right. You know what I mean? Like I'm doing something or whatever, and she's doing it, like she's doing a bar, but I'm doing it like this, or, or vice versa. They get the whole. Thing. And I finish. I finish the whole thing, and she says, "Play me another." So I retune it. I play it some other thing. Are you nervous? Yeah, I'm really a fucking nervous. I bet, yeah. Yeah, this is a big like uh, exam that I was not expecting. Right. I just was going to show her this list of songs, not being like, a wise yeah, ass. Yeah, like hey, like yeah. I just wanted to like. By the way, just so you know, like what I'm doing, because this is what I'm doing. A month later, when I take this picture here that we were talking about after between sets. So what? Tell, tell me about this picture. So this this is Joni uh, backstage between sets. It this is this is a single bare light bulb in, in a you know like that's up here dangling from a cord. Mm-hmm. So very harsh. And um, we were talking, and someone came in the room who she was talking to, and I just there's I, I um, somehow I knew enough to shoot it. So, like, I would never have heard of chiaroscuro at that point. I wouldn't have ever heard that term. But certainly this half-lit thing, and especially this thing, which is special in, like, in a lighting studio, if I knew anything about whatever I'd hear about, like, this is a cool thing you can do with lighting. But it just happened. It's just good available light, good and lucky available light photography. So this is the one that she looked at and said, that's the best picture of me anyone's ever taken. Would you be my photographer? Anyway, so this is at the in the basement, and it's right after I take this that uh, I show her the list. I make a print of this, and I take it to the next gig. I'm really excited because this is the best shot that I've done of her by far. Like, this is good. I know this is good. And that's where she says, like, I want, would you be my photographer? It's at Brooklyn College couple weeks later. So what happens next is that uh, Joni continued on her tour. 
I went back to high school and uh, I was excited that I had that she liked my photo so much. I didn't know what to expect next. Um, what happened was I came home from school one day and uh, in the mailbox was a letter from California in which was a letter from her that was a piece of construction paper folded in half mm. with a with an intricate uh, pen and ink drawing that she wrote uh, on the front and then uh, a note to me uh, asking would I please come to New York to photograph her first concert at Carnegie Hall that February. Carnegie Hall? Yes, it was a big deal for me. Even I knew about how important that was. And it was a major uh, landmark for any performer to, to play their first concert at Carnegie Hall. That means you've really made the big time. Uh, remember, it's only re very recently that she'd been playing small folk clubs. So it was a very big advance for her. And um, just thinking about it was uh, very exciting for me. And uh, it, it turned out to be a life-changing event. I guess so. Amazing. So taking you from a young high school kid, junior high school kid outside of Philadelphia, exploring guitar, delving into photography at an early age, meeting Joni Mitchell, all this great stuff you told us, you end up finally at Carnegie Hall. That's right. Amazing. Thanks for having us here, Nicole. Now, Joel, um, apart from going to your website, www. JoelBernstein.com. Do you have any gallery showings coming up soon? Uh, where can people see your see your artwork, see your photos? Well, uh, I do have two or three shows coming up that are uh, that I'm part of. There'll be a group show of four photographers' work, uh, photographs of Neil Young, and that'll be involving uh, myself, uh, Henry Diltz, Danny Clinch, and Julie Gardner. And I believe that the Los Angeles uh, exhibit is opening at their uh, Morrison Hotel Gallery in West Hollywood uh, on November 8th and in New York City on December 1st. And I believe sometime in January in Lahaina in La Maui. Fantastic. Yes. That's the Morrison Hotel Galleries in Los Angeles, New York, and then later in Hawaii. That's correct. Fantastic. Hope to see you there. Thank you, Will. To learn more about Joel Bernstein, to view his work, and find updates on upcoming gallery shows, speaking engagements, and other information, go to www.joelbernstein.com.